Today, we get to discuss the life of a man and likely future saint, Venerable Father Aloysius Schwartz. And it is not an overstatement to say that he exemplifies every archetype of a man, warrior, adventurer, passionate servant of Christ through Our Lady, and really an amazing example for every man alive today. Stay tuned. Hey everyone, thanks so much for joining us. If this is your first time following us on YouTube, make sure you click on that subscribe button and that bell button. If you're following us on a podcast player, please subscribe. Definitely write us a review if you've listened to a few of these. Also, we want to keep on providing these for men like you, our memes on our pages, our blogs on our websites. In order to do that, we need donors. If you are feeling inspired to donate us, to us, check out our tiers on patreon.com slash the Catholic gentleman. We've got some fun gifts uh, to give to you, and we'd just be grateful for everything you can give us. So today we have Kevin Wells. He is a former Major League Baseball writer, award-winning journalist, and best-selling author of The Priests We Need to Save the Church. He is a freelance writer and an active evangelist who speaks on various Catholic topics. He is the president of the Monsignor Thomas Wells Society, which is dedicated to the promotion of strong priests and seminarians and to the practice of the fullness of the Catholic faith. Kevin lives in Millersville, Maryland with his wife and three children. Kevin, thanks for being with us. John, it's great to be with you. Awesome. And so to dive right in, we're going to talk about this new book that you wrote, Priest and Beggar, um, on this episode today. And I just want to start by thanking you for writing this book. It's something that I haven't done before on episodes, but I just truly from the bottom of my heart want to thank you for bringing to life the story of Father Al, Venerable Father Al, uh, for us and all of our listeners. So I really appreciate it. John, thank you. I, I'm, um, you know, let's be honest. It, it's, it's an honor to be able to sort of lift the seal on this unknown venerable, this unknown future American saint. And, and I, I'm glad, John, that you, you, you see the power of his, of his life. Um, as I was writing his biography, it was a kick in the teeth Mm -hmm. to me just mm -hmm. to learn about this guy and how he challenged me. So I'm glad that you, um, you were moved by his life. Yeah. Thanks, Kevin. And before we dive right in there, I'd like to talk a little bit about you, right? Let our listeners know about you other than the biography that I read. So as life as a major league baseball writer, how did you find living out your Catholic faith or was it that your Catholic faith hadn't fully, um, you know, matured to where you are today? So, John, I'll just explain why my Catholic formation really wasn't that formed. Uh, I remember in 1998, uh, I was covering the Tampa Bay Rays. I was in the um, what they used to call the Thunderdome of a Tropicana Field, and the the Star Report came out. And that's what detailed Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky with all the sundry details. And one of the reporters there had passed out about 15 copies to press row and highlighted all of the stuff that men want to see, or so I thought back uh -huh, then. Uh -huh. And here's what, I, here's what I remember. I remember this. 
so I read it and I said, this is despicable. You know, what he did actually to his own wife, mm. um, how he treated himself as a husband, as the president of the United States, you know, where, where is the morality? Where's the ethics? Where is it? And I would just think, and I just kind of kept to my, to myself and, and all the guys were going back and forth. And so here's what happened. We were in, so a major league baseball clubhouse uh, doesn't open up until 15 minutes after the game. And I remember we were downstairs in the bowels of the stadium waiting to get into the clubhouse and everyone was talking about the report and to a man, everybody was defending Bill Clinton saying, ah, you know what? Look at his wife. Have you seen his wife? She's not that attractive anyway, or you know what? Who he has power. He can do what he wants and blah, blah, blah. So somebody finally asked me, Kevin, what do you think? And, and I said something mealy mouth, flat footed and timid Mm -hmm. where I didn't give assent to it. So, but I drove home that night. And I said, shame on you. Shame on you. You're a Catholic. You understand the faith. You're raised in a Catholic family. You were taught what's right and what's wrong. You stood up, you should have stood up and you didn't. And I and I sort of, I don't know, in, in a certain way, uh, a door was opened in my conscience that night that was never opened before that said, are you going to take your faith seriously? Or are you going to be a coward? So, so really that's when, as a sports writer, hanging around professional wow. athletes, uh, sports writers, where I said, I cannot live that way. I can't live my faith timidly. Yeah. Amen. I've had those moments as well. I went to Texas Christian university and was, um, attacked for my faith, but then I was a professional musician. That's why I always put the cornet out in the background there. So I was a professional trumpet player for, uh, for many, many years. And that environment is very, um, atheistic, agnostic, you know, actually very anti-Catholic at times. And I found it difficult. So I often avoided, right. Those, those tough conversations with that fear, right. It's that fear that I'm not going to have the right words. I'm going to look dumb first and foremost, right. The pride I'm going to look dumb. And then it's going to be, I'm not going to defend the church appropriately. And, um, Wow. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. I, I think that's that's really good. So that was a, a turning moment. How how much longer did you uh, continue to write, uh, you know, as a journalist for the Major League Baseball? Uh, it was for it was for a, f- a few more years. Mm-hmm. But but what had happened is, John, my wife and I got married, um, by the way, covering baseball as a single guy is the greatest profession <laughs> in the world because you travel around and you, cut, you watch baseball. Uh, it, it was great. <laughs> But I got married and, and here's what happened. Um, Tragically, my wife Mm -hmm. and I wanted to have 10 children. She's Catholic. I'm from a large Catholic family of 10. And we found out that God did not bless us this way. Mm -hmm. We could not have any children. Mm -hmm. So, so um, we needed to make a decision. Are we, and I'm from Maryland, I'm from the DC area. And I was down in Florida at the time for my job. And I said, um, I, I, what do we do here? What, I, I, so I said, well, maybe if we go back to Maryland, at least then during this, this, this pain that felt like a guillotine into our marriage can be soothed by family and friends. So actually we, I, I cut the cord after 10 years as a, yeah. as a journalist. And I mm. said, you know what? I need my family more than I need my desire to want to write. That's uh, that's great. I know. And that's probably a, a leap of faith right there. 
Um, what encouraged you then to all of a sudden become a writer for uh, the church? And obviously priests, we need to save the church, you know, uh, hip headlines. And those of us who are devout Catholic men and women, uh, you know, that's, that's um, a very uh, joyful sounding title um, to the ears. So what, what moved you in that direction to, to become a Catholic author uh, of a couple of really great books? Uh, a pretty startling thing happened. My, my uncle, Monsignor Thomas Wells, <clears throat> who many consider to be one of the strongest priests in the history of the Archdiocese of Washington, he was murdered in his rectory and um, in the early 2000s. And in the aftermath of his murder, um, a grotesque scene, um, just grotesque. It, was, it made sort of national news at the time, 3,000 people at the funeral, 250 priests and deacons just choked, choked the church. And, and um, you know, there was a black poisonous gas that just kind of settled over the Washington, D.C. area at the time. And in all throughout the morning, um, and I was very close to my uncle. I'll call him Tommy. He was my dad's brother. I was very close to him. I grew up in his shadow. I traveled the world with him. Ireland a few times, Canada, Yellowstone. We, he was my, he was sort of a, a mentor to me. So I ended up writing a piece for the Washington Post. <laughs> it's back when the Washington Post would actually accept um, strong Catholic pieces. And I wrote about the power of a priest and a power and the power of my uncle um, in a very Catholic way. And the Post bit and they said, yeah, uh, we want to we want to publish this. So uh, it got a, a pretty good response. And thereafter, I said, you know what, I think a large chunk of society that did not know my uncle Monsignor Wells and what he did as a priest before were led into a certain sense, a Titan, a paragon of the priesthood. So I want to do this more, not so much for the Catholics out there, but for the folks that are in the dark. Excellent. Well, praise God for saying yes to that. Um, and uh, yeah, may he rest in peace. I appreciate you sharing that. So I guess moving ahead, right, and a part of the joy of having you on is to really go deep into a conversation on on Father Al and this amazing venerable that um, I would imagine 90 plus percent of our listeners have never heard of, yet he saved the lives of tens of thousands of orphan kids. He uh, got into physical brawls with mob bosses. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I saw so many connections to St. Maximilian Kolbe. I saw so many connections to Mother Teresa. I saw so many connections to um, just a man in his own right, um, but that uh, passionate love of Christ through Our Lady, and I just kind of want to talk about all of it. So if you want to set the stage with uh, Father Al and uh, who he was, um, Father Schwartz, as, um, as a young child and where he came from, because he came from a difficult uh, beginning. It wasn't... Um, you know, uh, a lavish uh, household with with lots of possessions and um, uh, free flowing money and, uh, you know, and, and huge meals on the table. It was uh, one of a devout Catholic family, but that was struggling to make ends meet uh, during the Great Depression. I mean, this guy's stories of adventures are just so beyond and we won't be able to talk about all of them, but I'd love to let's start at the beginning. 
Sure, John. Let's circle back really quick. You said 90% yeah. of your viewers. I, I'm going to say between 98 and 99% <laughs> of your viewers have <laughs> never heard of Father Al. I think you're right. No, I think you're right. But here's what I'll say. He prayed not to be known. He did mm. not want to be known. And also, um, to a certain degree, uh, Father Al understood, well, it's, it's Mother Teresa. So if Mother Teresa never fell under the watchful gaze of Malcolm Mugridge, mm -hmm. her biographer, she might not be known. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I've often thought that. So Father Al felt that he, if he was known that his whole enormous mission would be tainted in some degree. So he just grinded away and worked. So as far as uh, Father Al, yeah, Father Al was born in the teeth of the Great Depression. You could not have been mm. born at a worse time. Mm. Uh, Adolf Hitler was on the rise. Um, you know, the dust storms, the worst dust storms in the history of America crushed farmers. Uh, you know, they say over 15 million people lost their jobs during that. You know, it was just a disaster. And his dad, his dad had a fourth grade education because his own dad said, we need you to quit school to work in the fish market. Yeah. So here's a, so here's, here's Al's father mm. who has seven children and he's got a fourth grade education and it's the depression. And he, and he just is scratching and clawing to make a living. So, so Al sort of came up understanding radical poverty. And here's why I think Al Schwartz needs to be known mm. um, today is when the crushing poverty came and when the darkness came and God's face seemed to turn away, a pilot light flicked on and he said, I know Christ is there. And in a certain sense, I want to help others come to know eventually how Christ is there in the poverty. And I feel compelled to go to the poor. So that's when he decided as an eight or nine-year-old, he wanted to be a Roman Catholic priest that went to the margins to be a priest. Yeah. And this Grapes of Wrath, you know, story of, of his, his coming into the world, um, he was also bullied a lot, right? And I know that that's a conversation that comes up in a, in a lot of our um, our um, posts and comments and stuff like that, is there's a, a certain sense of what it means to be a man. And I find that sense of what it means to be a man is always very much an individual who is you know, six foot four, um, you know, is, is, is a sports athlete who's educated, you know, and there you have it, you know, but, but man, with, within Father Al, when you go through this, um, I loved how you put in about uh, Tom and Glory Sullivan and that entrance of, of them meeting this larger than life figure that they had been giving money to, and he was five foot seven, right? And uh, so, but going back to that uh, to that bullying, he was able to overcome, uh, you know, this crisis uh, that he experienced. Where many kids, especially today, where uh, depression and anxiety and, and social media and social bullying is on the rise, um, what would you say was uh, kind of that helping and that guiding hand? Was it his family? Was it his faith? Um, you know, what What would you argue uh, brought that grace upon him and that openness to 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 God's grace uh, to, to move forward? It's a great question. I'm, I'm glad you brought this whole topic up. This yeah. must be the Catholic Gentleman podcast. Because, 
no one else has brought this up. So Al understood he grew up in a, a neighborhood on the wrong side of the tracks, and there was a lot of ne'er-do-wells mm-hmm. and dads and moms that would scream at their children and the children would scream back. And it was just, it was just dysfunction. Um, it was poverty. You know, the, a lot of people will hear the word poverty and they'll think about a lack of food, but of course, or, a, or living in a shack, but really what poverty is, is it crushes the soul. So kids that grow up in poverty, some of these bigger kids in the neighborhood, they all they know is being hammered by life. Mom and dad screamed at me again. Dad's drunk. Mom's on the streets. Mm -hmm. So what happens to the kids? They become angry and they want to pick fights. Well, Father Al was raised in an environment of authentic Catholicism. So so his mom and dad understood in this in this place of poverty, we need to sort of lead you to virtue. Uh, We need to understand that God in a certain sense, he's with us right now. So there's these colliding sort of um, elements. And, and what I would encourage for your for your viewer, or maybe someone who's experienced bullying, mm-hmm. or maybe a father out there, a mother whose son is experiencing bullying, is Father Al understood uniquely that number one, um, his guardian angel and Jesus were always right beside him. But here's what he did practically. He said, as I'm being bullied or people are coming after me and father, I was quick. Father was, mm. a, uh, he was an athlete. Yeah, fast, so he was yeah. able to, if it, was, if it was three against one, you know, he had no chance. He would just take off. But here's what he did. He said, I do what a man does. So he had two paper routes, the Washington Post in the morning, the Washington Star in the afternoon. Um, there was a playground where he would play sports, an enormous playground where he would play sports and swim all day. He always stayed busy, always stayed active. So some of these bullies that would come after him, he knew in a certain sense that they were looking at him. They saw him as an altar server on cold winter mornings during the weekdays serving mass. Mm. And and these kids that he went to school with, they might poke fun of him, but a certain sense their head said, this guy's got something I don't have. Mm. So when he did the paper routes in the morning and the afternoon for his family, because they needed the money, they said, I'm sitting on my butt. I'm not doing anything. This guy has something I don't have. So he kind of won over the bullies by, by his habits, by his virtue. And he had a very good nature. He was, he was a funny, he was a funny kid. He's a, I mean, a funny in a good way. Yeah. Um, so I think he won these bullies over just by being committed to doing the things that he knew he should do. Amen. I love that. It's very St. Alphonsus. If anybody knows the life of St. Alphonsus, you know, that he, uh, there, there was a, a Muslim uh, house, uh, butler or, or housekeeper uh, that that he won over, uh, you know, just by his example. It was like the, he was praying more on his knees. He was living more uh, charity towards his neighbor and in uh, love of neighbor and service of others that um, that he won over uh, this this housekeeper unintended to. So I appreciate, but at such a young age, though, for for Father Al to have that maturity is just um, a testament to to what God is capable of doing, right? When, when you just allow him to have your all and, and hold nothing back. Yeah, well, well, John, you know, this is this is a man who is radical. You know, saints were radical. They, yeah. they do not live like anyone else. They don't care what anyone else is doing. Um, in a certain sense, they always have, they're always soberly assessing what God would want through bullying, 
what is mom and dad? What do they need? They need money. Okay, I'll get paper routes. So he was he was very bold in that sense. He 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 understood that he he had gotten a tough shake with his family, yeah. no money in the house. But what what does God want me to do? How does He want me to behave? And and He obliged it. I mean, he he was very rare because he, he because he he tried to oblige God even at an early age. Yeah, and and he connected to that calling and never let go of it, and it caused him to um, basically ruffle feathers and and live in contradiction to uh, the standards within the church as well. And so I want to go through some of those, but I just first want to stop and say, because I know uh, when listeners, I, I see the graphs of how many people listen at the beginning and then start fading off. Uh, um, the life of, of Father just jumps out on these pages. Your ability to, uh, you're a great story writer. I think that's the other thing is that um, I had a spiritual director years ago and I've lived by it where throughout my life, I'm always just trying to have a saint story on my nightstand, right? Somebody that I'm walking with learning from the heroes, um, of our church, learning from the authentic witnesses of, of true faith, but generally, uh, they get a little bit more textbook or it's the areas of their comments, right? Like the quotes and everything like that, which you have plenty of them in for father Al, but it's the area of their quotes that um, that you're like, oh wow, that's powerful. Oh, look at this diary or something like that. Um, but I just want to I just want to call that out to our our listeners and encourage you to pick up a copy because your ability to tell a story just really sucks you in uh, to his life. So I know that's more of a compliment to you, but uh, but I'm again grateful that it makes it easy for us to who are searching holiness to uh, to look through and uh and see that coming off the page and wanting to be that yourself so, so john i was a sports writer and i was given advice early on by an editor and he said if you're going to be descriptive and let's say you let's just say you go into father al's neighborhood of poverty in 1930 don't just say that there were broken windows on his street count how many broken windows there were and then find the people behind them. So, so I, I, I feel, you know, really, I feel a burden to the, to the reader that if I'm going to take them yeah. into the life of, of a man they've never heard of, Venerable Aloysius Schwartz, then I better have them flipping pages because if I got them all stuck in a, in a, in a, in a very pious quote or, yeah. or something that he was led to by, you know, that's, that's fine. But I, I want them as a sports writer does tend to do. I want to take them deeper into the story. Yeah, and you do a great job. How and um, how were you able to get a lot of these uh, stories? I know that you. Um, I was planning on talking about this later, but we're going to talk about it now. How did you uh, uh, find a lot of these stories? I know that you were able to connect with some of his closest friends and family members. And um, I'd love you to call out a few of them, uh, even your trips and things like that, whatever it took for you to really become saturated in the life of, of Father Aloysius Schwartz. Well, I, I'm going to just start with this one. Um, I knew, and I'll go back to what I just mentioned. I knew to count the broken windows and the people behind them, I needed to go down to Chalco, Mexico in Guadalajara, Mexico, where his girls' towns and boys' towns are mm. all these years later. 
And I needed to find the sisters that tended to him when he was dying of Lou Gehrig's disease. So really quick, um, during the middle of COVID, I just snuck down to Mexico, did all the Mm. legwork I needed to do. And I went through this humble paradise of resurrection in Chaco, Mexico, where 3,300 teenagers are, teenage girls are. And, And I went up to Sister Margie, who bathed and cleaned and took care of Father Al as he was dying mm. in the teeth of ALS from his wheelchair. And she started to tell me stories. And here's what she said. If you really want to know Father Al Schwartz, come back here tomorrow at 9 a.m. And I'm like, okay. okay. Right. So I show up and there's 12 broken apostles, 14, 15, 16 year old girls who one by one by one are telling me stories about I was trafficked. Mm. in Guerrero, Mexico. And I was saved by these sisters who took me into, into this Chalco. Next person, I saw my dad shot dead in the street and my mom burned to death until the sisters brought me into girls town one by one by one. And here's what happens, John, I'll just say, and these really were I, my greatest sources, the sisters and the kids in a certain way who didn't wow. even know him because they were transformed it transforms like a silly word you can throw out there. It doesn't mean mm-hmm, anything, mm-hmm. but they were like Lazarus's pulled from the tomb who understood resurrection from what these sisters, how these sisters love them back in that proper health. And they got, sh- now they're shot off into the world after five years of education and they're recatechizing a set really in whatever country it is, Korea, the Philippines, Mexico, et cetera a world that starves for what father Al introduced in 1957 to these sisters and kids. So that's a long way of saying the sisters were enormously valuable to me because they followed him around. And one more, I want to mention. Yeah, please. Um, Monsignor James Golosinski. He's a 92 year old stud priest down in Texas. He's alive and well. And he followed Father around, Father Al around for 10 years. And he's the one who said, and this is what I knew I had a good source. Mm-hmm. He said, Kevin, people often tell me that St. Vincent de Paul was the saint that Father Al modeled his priesthood after. And I, I believe, I believe it is. That's the truth. Yeah. I contend that what Father Al did exceeds what St. Vincent de Paul said. And I, and I said, well, you got about 20 more hours where we could talk. So, so Monsignor Golosinski told me story after story after story about this superhero that took on all comers and walked straight through them. Um, so he was, he was probably my greatest source because he was there for 10 years in, in a poverty-wracked Korea. Yeah. And so let's talk about his missionary spirit which then, but was also, I, I feel, united to his adventure, you know, his drive for adventure, his venturous self uh, through his, his, seminary, uh, his seminary days. Uh, because when I, when I was going through that, right, there was just this, this real um, excitement about the fact that he just stepped out and and was willing to try all these things throughout Europe or but even before then and I'd love for you to talk about that because I know that that is in the heart of men right is to 
to go out uh, to Antarctica, to go on, you know, uh, these wild trips and, and to really live that sort of warrior spirit that he uh, really encapsulated throughout uh, his, his youth before um, moving to Korea. John, you identified it. Father, I was a very normal boy and at the age of eight or nine when, um, when he began to desire the priesthood. A comic book um, began to fascinate him. It wasn't Superman or the Incredible Hulk or the Lone Ranger. Mm. It was a DC comic called The Boy Commandos. And it was four orphan boys that would travel the world and enter into Naziville and Hitlerville and take out the bad guys. And Father Al would fall asleep at night to the boy commandos. His brother, his brother Al, I'm sorry, his brother Lou told me this. So that's when he said even more, um, I I wonder if a priest can rescue like this. So you're right, John, you identified it. There was that electricity that burned within him to save. But he was able to unite um, Jesus Christ, sort of the poor man of Nazareth the starved man on the cross who bled out, who gave everything to save humanity, to redeem all humanity. Well, Father Al said, well, (laughs) I want to be like these superheroes. And if a priest is a superhero, how does he act? Well, he gives all. So from the very beginning, Father Al wanted to give all. He wanted to be a martyr. He really did. Um, So he, he took this, this idea. And oftentimes these ideas from boys, they dim they lessen. Instead, they expanded in, in Father Al's yeah, life. And exactly wherever right. he went, wherever he went, he just became this, this enormous, bright hallelujah of I will mm-hmm. enter into this dangerous place, into this poverty, in this humiliated um, mountain, and I will come and I will rescue you. So in a certain sense, he was like a priestly superhero. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And talk about his uh, his time of leaving uh, Mary Knowles and going to Europe, uh, because there's some there's some summers there that again they really call to that former youth of my of I'm sure our listeners as well is that this idea that. Yeah, I'm going out in this gorgeous, you know, uh, landscape in this beautiful country, but you know, I'm really going to rough it. I'm not going to have a toilet. I'm not going to have running water. Like these sort of stories, I would love to uh, have you share some of those. Well, I, I don't often use these two names, but I'll throw them out just for this podcast. Yeah. Jack Kerouac and Thomas Merton. He he mm-hmm. he 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 had very little in common with either of them. However, he had a lot as far as a sense of adventure. Yeah. Um, but before I get into the adventure, I will say this because it's important for the Catholic gentleman viewer to understand, Father, I was bold. Mm. And, and he called out what he called phoniness. And he sensed in the Mary Nollers as he was being formed that although the Mary Nollers would agree to go to the mission territory in Africa or Japan or Korea or Philippines, Father Al knew at the same time that they would leave the poor neighborhoods and go back to these homes that had televisions, radios, air conditioning, good food, comfortable bedding. And he said, phony. It's phony. Until the Mary Nollers enter into the poor's life and actually reside there rather than being on the periphery, the poor will always see them as half measures and fake. 
very bold, very bold thing to say. Nothing against the Marinolers. I'm reporting right. Father Al's life here. And he said, I cannot be a Marinoler because I will not accept half measures in my priesthood. So he found this obscure order of priests that was exactly what he was looking for. They, were, they would be sent out to the worst areas in the world, and they would live poor and among the poorest priests. He said, that's what I want. So he ended up in Louvain, Belgium. Where, yeah. where he studied under the Samists. And during the summers, because he had no money to get home, um, his family was poor. They couldn't send him money either. Mm -hmm. um, he would, and, and John, as you were saying, he would have a few bucks in his pocket and he'd say, hey, Mary, where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? And he would start hitchhiking in different parts of, the, uh, of, of Europe. Yeah. Um, yeah, literally, literally yeah. he would spend... Uh, three, four weeks, just, and he, he almost had this idea of God provides, there's providence in here, and the Lord will stick people into my life that can help me, but maybe I can help them too. So every summer, he would find a way to just sort of encounter whether there are prisoners uh, at um, Abbey Pierre's camp in France, or whether they were folks on the road that he met, um, just, just hitchhiking underneath a a pine forest by a mountain. There was always what someone would pop into his life that he encountered, and and they they took to him immediately because they saw his joy and his yeah. sort of this sense of ambition and a carefree spirit. So he just he kind of lived life moment by moment. He didn't worry about the future, didn't worry about the past. It was Mary, you you've led me to this day. How are we going to have fun, and how can I serve your son? Yeah, living life in the present, and actually. Let's see if I can grab it real quick. Uh, yeah, he said, my apostolate is hers, and I would like to be buried at her feet and say that all praise, glory, and honor for anything good accomplished in my life goes to her and her alone. And let's talk about that. Let's talk about his, that, that Marian spirit. So um, consecration to Mary, you know, through St. Joseph and when, uh, sorry, consecration to Mary, a consecration of Christ through Mary. Sorry, a lot of things going on. And the... Everyone, um, you know, has has heard about that now because of, of Father Michael Gately. Um, you know, we, we've a lot of our faithful listeners are consecrated to to Our Lady, but he he took it just that step. For, well, actually, he just completed uh, that that consecration that I think Father, uh, sorry, Saint Louis de Montfort was was calling all of us to, and the fact that his his passionate love of Jesus Christ um, through Our Lady was so guiding that it allowed him, as you just got to, to live in the present. And all that's good that happens to me, all that's bad that happens to me, I just give to her. And I just want it to be, you know, for the glory of God and the salvation of souls. If that it ends today, so be it. If that goes on into the future, you know, uh, so be it. So uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on our lady and that sort of passionate drive that he had. Well, thank you, John, for identifying the most important part. I think of the book, it's kind of the heart of the book, the hinge point of father Al's life happened in Bano, Belgium, uh, an obscure apparition site approved by the church that father Al, uh, fell in love with and became devoted to, he would hitchhike to Bano about two hours away from Louvain, where he was studying, he would take trains, he would find a ride, 
they get to Mary in this tiny little podunk town that reminded him of Nazareth mm-hmm. or John Vianney's town of ours. Uh, he would get off these trains and he was drawn, drawn to Mary because of what Mary had said in 1933 to a little peasant girl named Mariette Becco. The whole town knew poverty and much of the town gave up on the Catholic faith because of the poverty. And Mary appeared, known as the Virgin of the Poor, appeared identifying herself with the poor. For the first time in apparition sites, Mary came with a gentle smile. Eight different apparitions, always smiling, saying, I have come to relieve the suffering. I have come for the poor. And Al was pierced. He was struck. He said, this is what I've wanted. This is what I wanted as an eight, nine-year-old boy. Mary, you've called me from Washington, D.C. You've called me from the slums here to Beno, Belgium. Mary, I love you. You're beautiful. You, you, just, you just know how to do this. So everything turned when he became, and he said this in his journals, Mary, I am now your slave. You carry the whip hand. Everything I do from this day forward, I give to you. I consecrate my priesthood to you, and I will serve you wherever I go. So I will leave, I will leave the poor who have dignity, who've been abandoned and disregarded and rejected by society. I will tell them they have dignity, and I will bring them to your son. So that's kind of that that sort of was the uh, the impetus that started his priesthood. Yeah, that willful slavery, straight St. Louis de Montfort. That's so wonderful. I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, how did you describe it just there? The uh, the whip? Um, uh, Mary, had, Mary had the whip hand. And Mary had the whip hand. Wow, that's oh, that's that's awesome. I just think of, um, yeah, you think of uh, Maximilian Colby, that might be an instrument of your grace. But you, yeah, you just think, see it really lived in such a glorious and beautiful way in his life. I mean, it's, so he, um, he had some difficulties. Uh, he ruffled some feathers. He almost didn't get ordained. Um, he had that struggle. Um, I don't want to go through the whole book, but, um, but let's talk about his early years in, uh, Korea because, um, you know, spoiler alert, he, he saved, uh, kids from concentration camps. He, um, he got into fight with, you know, a mob boss, uh, Soon Young, as we talked about, as I mentioned earlier, you know, but but he had to get to Korea first. And why was it Korea that he chose? And uh, what was it that, uh, you know, that you would say brought him there? And then his early days, um, I'd love to hear those thoughts. He chose Korea because at the time it was the worst place on the earth. It, uh, it was the war had just ended. Um, over a million had died in the Korean War. And again, um, Mary, when, when he made a, a, a vow to Mary, he said, I will go to the worst off. And, and, that, and that was post-war Korea. So on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception in 1957, he got off a train and he saw a dystopian novel. He saw gangs of lepers rubbing their diseased limbs up against people to steal their money. He saw unwed mothers beneath bridges. He saw orphans left to die on the streets. Um, it was, it, you know, and, and what he really saw, you know, he saw the tubercular, it just, just, it was devastation. But what he really saw was Satan had stepped into the void. It was a devastated landscape, scorched, 
and now he was sort Satan was sort of working more evil and anger and desperation into it. And that's when he said, Mary, now it's time to work. Now it's almost like he, he breathed in sort of the, the scent of the cane animals, human excrement, pollution, rot. And he said, ah, that's the incense of my new life. This is the red carpet of my priesthood. Mary, thank you. This is where I want to be. So that's where he got started. Yeah. And, and so that our listeners don't think that this was like this just uh, immediate moment of, of grace. Um, when he was going into, uh, when he was in his seminary, right, and he would return home, he would sleep in the basement, I remember, uh, so that he could be with the rodents, so that he could get used to that. You talk about how, like, a lot of this stuff was really hard, and I know I've spoken on different of our episodes about to get a really solid daily prayer life. It took, like, seven years of spiritual directors telling me I had to be doing this, and, you know, and I I was doing it. So I'd go many weeks uh, doing it and then I, I wouldn't. But but yeah, just so people don't think because we have that tendency um, just to assume that, well, some people, right, you've heard the St. Jean, you know, these these buzzwords in the Catholic circles now, but uh, they just have this idea that, well, God just chooses some people for things, you know, otherworldly and beyond um what an average person can do but but he was lo- in love with saint therese and he um but he had to work for this you know and he just had to constantly die to himself so i just make a, a note well, of that. well john you just john you identified again the saint that he always was drawn to sort of as a sunflower is drawn to the sun's rays. It was Therese of Lisieux because Therese was inch by inch, moment by moment. And he understood when he saw the devastation of Busan, Korea in the Southern Peninsula, and it was a, just a, just a devastating landscape. He knew that if he just acted like the little flower and did a little bit here and there that it might build, but he, he couldn't have understood the incomprehensible amount of good that came from it. No, certainly not. So, so in Busan is where he had a a minor altercation with um, a gangster. Um, I'd love to to talk about that, right? And so this is, and just to set the stage, right? We're talking about uh, a five foot seven, hundred and thirty pound man on fire with zeal for for our Lord and and passionate love, you know, for Christ through Our Lady. Um, and and how he can you can accomplish anything, right? Your 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 size doesn't matter. So yeah, why don't we talk a little bit about uh, that portion of his life? Yeah, look at look at Mother Teresa, right? It's about four foot eight. Yeah, um, size doesn't matter. Um, so what what I will say is that uh, it's important to note that when he and it goes back, John, what you were just mentioning when he understood what he wanted to do to transform this, this Southern Peninsula and bring them the Catholic faith, thousands didn't know the Catholic faith, but he as a priest wanted to bring it to them. He said, well, what do I do? Well, I'm going to subtract from my comforts. I'm going to subtract mm-hmm. from anything that might sort of deter me and, and take the edge off of my zeal and desire. So he moved into a condemned shack with no plumbing, no electricity, no heating, nothing. Um, Because he understood he needed to absorb the way of the saints. He needed to absorb scripture 
uh, that ascetical lifestyle he took deadly serious, deadly serious. He knew he needed to like live like Jesus, the poor man, Jesus, the starved man. If he was going to do what he promised Mary, he would do. So for five years, he lived in this shack. And when he came out, he was like a poured libation of Christ's most precious blood. Mm. He was light. He was just light. Now, obviously, he, you know, when he came out, he would come out of the shack every day and, and tend to the poor. But when he finally felt, now I'm ready after these five years, that's when everything exploded. And to go back to your, to your question, so his bishop at the time had seen that he was this, this American cowboy priest was changing the landscape of his diocese of Southern Korea. But he was, Father, I was raising donations from America, from Americans because they understood his work. Mm-hmm. His bishop started to take money, give it to family, priest friends, the government. He wasn't using the money correctly. He was stealing the money. Yeah. So Father Al said, you're done. You're done. I'm cutting you off. And and last thing I'll say is, so after that, Bishop Choi, what does he do? He begins to disparage Father Al to, to area bishops throughout Korea, uh, throughout the Far East. All priests, don't stay away from this Father Al. Don't get near him. He's dangerous. So what does Father Al say? I don't care. Mary put me on a mission. Mm-hmm. Do, say whatever you want to say. Do whatever you want to do. I must fight for the poor and I'm under Mary's guidance. In a certain sense, you've incarnated me, but you're also stealing money. So I must oblige my conscience. I must oblige God. And Mary lives as an icon in my soul. And I must tend to the poor. So get lost. Mm, yeah. And you you bring up another point. So I think you mentioned, you know, so there's this... Um, there's this basically I was likened to a concentration camp, but there's this, you know, location there that uh, kids are being forced against their will. They're losing their lives they're, They've lost all sense of dignity, uh, just hundreds of yards from where uh, father was and attempting to do such good work. Um, there's a full circle here because you mentioned in the book how, you know, when he first got this um, gangster, this mob boss, who was the head of uh, this whole, um, you know, criminal network that got him first, uh, you know, thrown into jail that his bishop, right, helped get him out of jail, this, this, this mob boss. So what's the, what's the story there? But his bishop wanted, his bishop essentially wanted this criminal to kill Father Al. Mm. So he bailed, he essentially bailed him out. Um, so, and, and this, this mob boss did want to kill Father Al, uh, and he had gangs that would, that would, um, attack him and his sisters of Mary order that he founded. Yeah. Uh, again, Father Al, so Father Al, I, the way for your viewer, the, the best way to understand Father Al, cause it, it's a lot, is he always had this sort of this kaleidoscope, this three pronged kaleidoscope. And it was always sort of spinning. It was like, if it's in the gospel, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. If the saints did it, then I'm going to try my best to do it. And if Mary is leading me there, then I'm going to go. So whether it was a bad bishop or the biggest kingpin in Southern Korea or American bishops that were complaining that he was that he was taking the donations for the Korean poor, whomever it was, his own seminary rector, 
it didn't matter. Like he was, he was in a certain sense, you could say he was fearless. Um, but I would say because he knew that he had sort of protective cover by Mary's mantle, nothing could deter him to go to the poor because Mary asked him to. So this gangster, he didn't, yeah. he didn't care that the gangster might kill him because he knew in a certain sense, like John Paul knew when the, when the bullet came, it would be deflected and it would, and, and, and I'll just say this, I don't want to give away too much of the book, but, but he was right because the gangster eventually died in a horrible car accident Hmm. and his Bishop was eventually removed because of his duplicity and his corruption. Yeah. And, and there were physical altercations and there was, um, weapons. I mean, there was just everything that he had to go through, but yes, let's not gloss over the religious order that he founded. And, um, you know, I get excited about all these like action. I mean, honestly, there's not a movie, uh, in Hollywood close to, to the life of, of father Al and what he experienced, you know, like some of the stuff that he experienced, uh, wouldn't, make it in Hollywood because it's just, it's too, you know, unbelievable. But let's talk about his, how he founded that religious order and how he needed that help in Korea and, and, and who he found, you know, how, how our lady was just inspiring uh, souls throughout Korea to fight this uh, diabolical, uh, you know, um, entrance. I liked how you said that, that Satan, you know, entered into the gap of that desolation but so was Our Lady, and um, obviously through uh, the power of Christ. So, uh, yeah, talk a little bit about the uh, the Sisters of Mary. Well, he needed these orphans that he really started to put on his back, um, almost like Atlas, one after the other. He needed he needed them to be mothered back to health, mothered to Christ. So he really, in modeling himself after DePaul. He needed de Marillac, Louise de Marillac, and de Marillac was the the saint that St. Vincent de Paul chose to form the Daughters of Charity. So he said, if if I'm going to build these orphanages in these boys' towns and girls' towns, I need sisters. I need really more mothers to Mm. mother them back to spiritual and physical health. So he formed the Sisters of Mary in 1964. And now, and today I'll just cut forward, now there's over 400 Sisters of Mary throughout the world. So, so he just, he was very practical minded. He, he needed mothers who, who, who ended up being very holy sisters that, uh, that did the, that helped do the work. Yeah. And where did those sisters come from? Like I, I, you mentioned, you know, briefly the, the stories of, of their lives, you know, in that war-torn country. And so where did, where was the, um, yeah. What was the primary type of, of early sister of Mary, you know, um, where was where were they coming from in their walks of life? Venerable Al Schwartz was brilliant, brilliant. When he put an ad in the newspaper, he didn't ask for sisters. He didn't ask if you're a Catholic, Buddhist. It didn't matter. He said, "I need women to come down to Busan to help the poor. I need your help." So one by one, these poor te- upper teenagers, lower twenties women. Um, sent back resumes or whatever was done back in 1964 saying, I want to meet with you. So they began to filter down from these poor villages throughout Korea saying, I want to help. Uh, I want to help you, uh, Father Al. And as they sat across from him, they weren't in, in these uh, Gucci uh, outfits. They came in their same outfits they would wear when they were out in the fields or in their home. 
And he said, these poor women are the future sisters that will tend to these kids and bring them Christ. And, and darn if he wasn't right, because he understood very keenly, he understood that as they tended to the poor, that the poor would heal them as well, because all these girls had the mm -hmm. woundedness of poverty. So as they gave themselves to the poor, the poor would show them great joy for being helped, and they would come to know Christ. It was very symbiotic. There was a, yeah. there was a linear symmetry that Father Al understood of how God worked. Feed the poor, the poor feed you, and you come to know Christ. Yeah, so powerful. That's so great. And he and he did. And how many, um, how many kids did he have in his boys' town and girls' town when he started fighting um, ALS? Like how many, how many kids during that period of the life? Because I know it's in tens of thousands now, um, and they've expanded so far. But just right there in Korea, um, what what's the number that that he was helping of these abandoned? Oh, you said it. Um, you said it somewhere that uh you know <clears throat> they were i have to find this because it was it was uh, about when he first went to korea and that um that train scene um and you just mentioned that um that he was just yeah the he couldn't have known then um that the demented scene was a foreshadowing of his priesthood you know he um, pulled these abusive kids or kids that were abused in utter desolation and in horror stories. I mean, yeah, he pulled them out of their lives. So his priesthood would center on pulling boys and girls from abuse, horror, and utter desolation. It really is. And so how many, going back to that initial question, how many lives was he uh, right there uh, personally touching before um, Lou Gehrig's took over? When he was diagnosed in 1989 of Lou Gehrig's disease, um, he had four boys towns and girls towns in the Philippines with over 12,000 boys and girls plucked out of poverty. And in Korea, he had about a little bit less than that. <clears throat> so it was somewhere hovering in the neighborhood of 15, 16,000 children. And, um, and, and I'll just say this to, just to show you what an astonishing human being this was. When he was diagnosed with ALS in 1989, um, rather than saying, I have three years left to live, um, he said, Mary, you call me to work harder now. Mm -hmm. And you call me from Mexico, but you're no longer Our Lady of Beno, you're Our Lady of Guadalupe. We know, I know I've heard that poverty is crushing the Mexicans. They're leaving the faith. They're becoming Pentecostal, evangelical, Protestants. Some have become agnostic because of the crushing poverty. Mary, I will go to Mexico with a cane. Mm -hmm. I will go and disappear there. I will vanish in Mexico to build boys' towns and girls' towns there so they can come back and know the Catholic faith that you brought to Juan Diego. Yeah. Praise God. So. Right there, he was already in the tens of thousands when uh, when he was struggling, and he, he didn't give up, right? And isn't that a testament uh, and a witness to the lives of the saints where it's just, we don't retire, right? It's not when I hit 65, then I'll live, right? It's a continuation until that final joy and um an unending bliss of, of heaven that we strive for. 
And uh, I was going to, I was just going to say, I'll feed off that, John. So Father Al used to tell the sisters, we can slow it down in heaven. But, but, but also, but also he said to the sisters, <clears throat> the way we serve is to have a constant crown of thorns. Hmm. So he, the way he would see his service and the sister's service, he, 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 he always kind of thought of Damien the leper, where Damien would have uh, lines of the lepers come into this tight, wooden, hot confessional box. And the smell and the stench of the wounds became so overpowering, he would leave the vomit. And then he would come back in to hear more confessions. Well, Father Al, Father Al heard, you know, he worked 17, 18, 19 hour days every day. He didn't take a day off because he was working for Mary. So, so you're right, John. There, <laughs> and I'll say this, he shouldn't be dead. So he was an athlete. He ran every day of his life. Um, off, he ran marathons. Yeah, six, six miles a nine, day, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. He would be 90 years old today. He died in 1992. But he would be one of these 90-year-olds that looks like they're 68 because they're in such great shape. Yeah. And they're, they're up here. They got it. So I, I often, in researching his life and, and, and understanding, trying to understand the incomprehensible amount of good that he did, if he, if he was alive today, there would be boys' towns and girls' towns in the hollers of West Virginia, yeah. in the slums of Chicago. I mean, it, it, it drives me crazy in a certain sense because we don't understand God's ways, but he was doing so much that, that um, and, and a part of me feels like that that's where the baton is held to John and Kevin. Like yeah. the sisters of Mary, they're doing it every day. Like they're bold, like Father Al is bold. Uh, Father Dan Leary, who's the new missionary priest in for all these kids throughout the world, he stepped into the shoes of Father Al, and he's being kicked in the teeth because he hears yeah. five to seven hours of confession every day, um, and he deals with unspeakable wounds from these kids, physical, emotional, sexual abuses. Again, we go back to poverty. It's crushing, not because you don't have money and food. It's crushing because of far more devastating psychological wounds. So, so I feel like Father Al was like, okay, Mary took me at 62. Um, you, you now know what I did in, in, in Priest and Beggar. Um, what are you going to do? Like, size yourself up. Where in your life do you need to shave off comfort to help the least of these, to help this society that oftentimes is in revolt of truth, in revolt of, of my son's, of, my fa of the father's love? What are you going to do to step into it as Father Al has, as the Sisters of Mary do all over the world right now? So he really, he, I was sized up in, in writing this book. That I was sized up in just reading it. So I can't imagine the years that you spent going through this. And I just want to say that it, it can be something small, right? Like we don't have to assume that we are all of a sudden called like I'm a married father with five kids, nine and under. And it's not that I am 
instantly called to fly to Japan or China. You know, I've been to China twice and, and I've definitely seen the desolation there, but that's not what, what God could be calling us to here. It can be something as small as that closet you haven't uh, taken care of or that kitchen that needs to be cleaned or that car that needs to be um, fixed or something like that, just something small that's basically calling us to get over ourselves and to and to you know do small things with love uh you know for the benefit and getting out of our lethargy and our um or just uh you know kind of melancholic woe is me you know sort of a personality that we all struggle with right well well that's it you know i i already know myself well enough that i can do nothing great yeah. but but I, I i go back to Teresa of Lisieux. And I tell my kids this all the time. And what and actually what Mother Teresa used to say, love without sacrifice isn't love. So the root of everything are these small sacrifices that we make, whether it's for our family or for our neighbor or, or for whomever. Um, but but they tend to build up and that's where we build up the virtue within ourselves. So, yeah, I, it, I think it's kind of foolish and foolhardy to strive to go to China and uh, we're going to take communism away. I'm going to figure out what happened with COVID-19. I'm going to go mm. to that plan and see where the, <laughs> no, 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 no. It, Therese of Lisieux got it. I'm the little ball in the corner that no one's playing with, but I'm going to be a, a good little ball until someone does play with me. And I'm going to sit next to the sister who's chewing with her mouth open and reciting the yeah. rosary too loud with, with and I'm going to be, I'm going to be um, charitable to her. Mm. It's those little tiny pinpricks, those acts that we do. We, we all kind of know it, but boy, I tell you what, I, I think in a certain, to a certain degree, they're harder to do than take the arrow to the heart and die a martyr because you're doing it all stinking day long. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk about, um, I want to spend some time talking about just bringing to this to the present. Uh, so, so people know in your book, you bring up COVID. Um, uh, Father Al's brother passed away uh, during COVID while you were um, still working on this. Um, but uh, I just want to bring it to the present. And, and let's talk about the Sisters of Mary today and the work that they're doing. I want to spend some time because I know that's close to your heart. It's close to mine as well. Um, like this is not a distant saint, right? This is not even a distant story. Uh, this is, is right here and now um, actively uh, happening. The, these lives of kids are still being saved uh, uh, for, for Holy Mother Church and for Christ. Um and uh, I'd love for you to spend some time just talking about uh, that reality. John, on this very July summer day, there's over 20,000 kids being saved. And, and I, I, need to, I need to really articulate what's happening. So I was down there, you know, I studied Father Al's life down there, and I got to know the boys and the girls at Boys Town in Guadalajara and Girls Town in Chaco. So this is just one, one situation. There's, and I have dozens, but this is just one. I was down there last month because I wanted to uh, give the sisters a few books. And, and, and Father Dan Leary, who's the new missionary priest down there, he was, he was um, a priest in the Archdiocese of Washington for mm. 23 years. And he had a call within a call. And his ordinary let him depart to become a missionary. Um, and he said, hey, Kevin, see that girl over there? I'm like, yeah, yeah, the one with the smile. Yeah. Well, she went home over Christmas for four or five days. 
And as she was walking two hours to mass to get the mass on Christmas day on the way back, two men did the most unspeakable sexual things to her. And he said, Kevin, her mom asked her three days later to go to the market before she went back to Girlstown. Those two men got her again. What the sisters of Mary are doing is they're taking in girls that are constantly in danger of Veracruz, Oaxaca, Guerrero, of being human trafficked. They're taking the boys that get beaten by gangsters if they don't sell drugs. They're walking up into these hills. You know, remember, Father Al always walked up into the mountains where the lepers lived and the tubercular lived, and he walked back down with them. Well, the sisters understood how Father Al did it. So as Father Al didn't fear the gangsters and his bishop and mm. all the people that came after him, the sisters say, I need to walk two by two into these rotten, evil mountains, the most heavily human trafficked places in the world, and bring these kids back down where not only they can be resurrected from the wounds of poverty, but for five years, we feed, we educate, we catechize, we play sports with, we pray with. So when they leave five years later as 18, 19-year-olds, they go into universities, workplaces, and even back into their own villages. And not only do they, do they sort of present themselves as shafts of Catholic light, you know, these Lazaruses that have been pulled from yeah. the tomb because they now know life. The sisters and Father Dan sort of resurrected them, but they're recatechizing the broken world. I think in a certain sense, and I, and, and, I, and I will say this, John, until the cows come home, because I saw it. I saw it for a month. I think what the Sisters of Mary are doing today is the most important that I know, mission in the world, because it's saving the battered part of the Catholic Church, because they are sending out Catholic missionaries, and they don't know any better than to go into the world as joy-filled Catholics, not fallow, painted-on joy, but joy-filled Catholics because they have been resurrected from poverty. And now they're engineers, they're architects, they're orchestral musicians, they're professional athletes, they're plumbers, they're electricians. They're going into the world workforce, but they're going in with that Catholic light. So I think it's astounding what's yeah. still going on on this July day. Yeah, that's sobering. You just, uh, uh, you know, if the book wasn't enough, I'm glad we're here talking. Um, yeah, that's, that's sobering. And that's, that's exactly what's happening today. And so how many of these different, you said there's 400 sisters, how many different locations do they have today? Um, where can somebody go to learn um, more about them? And, and yeah, and like, I mean, myself included, I had heard of Sisters of Mary. I had never spent any time looking them up. I had never heard of Father Al until I was blessed to meet you like about a year ago. Um, so uh, yeah, where, where can people learn more about uh, this remarkable order, saving the lives of the most innocent and, and vulnerable, you know, among us? Well, I, I didn't know much about them at all either, John, but now I do. And so I, I've always been one of these guys that has always tried to pick three um, organizations or, or Catholic uh, nonprofits to give to. And when I found out about the, uh, the sisters, now they're number one. I tie to them now. Okay. So for instance, there's, there's 18, there's a, they're in seven different countries. 
Mm. There's uh, 14 different boys' towns and girls' towns and several other hospices, um, uh, hospitals and that the sisters uh, tend to the sick and the broken. But I'll, but I'll say this. They just, like, for instance, they just opened a girls' town in Tanzania, Africa. Well, they need water in the wells of Tanzania. Yeah. You know, it, it, they, they need a boys' town in Tanzania. So, so um, I love what World Villages does. Um, it, by the way, for your viewer, worldvillages.org is where you can find out how you can really spend some of your tithe to help, and I, in my estimation, to help save not only children, but the Catholic Church as you support these sisters. But, but the, it's broken down very well on their website. I won't, I won't sort of belabor it. But worldvillages.org, and you'll see specifically how you can help these children, help these sisters, and and I think really help the Catholic Church. Amen. And I'll put that in the show notes. Um, but I'm also going to put your book in the show notes because it's important. Before we go there, though, anything else about Father Al's life that you feel we should touch on before talking about you know the book and where to get it and and these sort of things because. I can I can attest that we have we have just you know tip of the iceberg fraction of of his life in this hour or so. Um, but anything else that you feel uh, would be good for generally speaking men, um, a lot of fathers uh, to to take away and to um, reflect on. Great question. Well, the podcast is called the Catholic Gentleman, and and when I think of the word gentleman. I think of a man who obliges the burden of his identity. So as a father, you're always soberly assessing your children. Uh, is your teenage son missing curfew? Well, if he is, you're going to stay, you're going to stay up at two in the morning. You're going to address it when he gets home. Um, is your teenage daughter dressing promiscuously? Mm. Well, you're going to address it and you're going to speak very frankly about it. Um, father, Al was a gentleman because Mary had asked him to do something. And what Mary had asked him to do was profound. It was too much. But as gentlemen do, he understood the burden of his identity as a priest. In Persona Christi, it was to resemble her son on the cross who gave all. So understanding what Mary wanted out of him, be like my son, give all, pick up your cross daily and walk, go forward. I am with you. I am with you. So I would I would encourage um, your listeners, especially those men, those fathers, um, all day long. I mean, we we have crosses every day. We we can't escape them. Mm. But but I, I think I think what needs to be done is we need to start embracing our crosses because as Father Al saw, with all the the poverty and all the work and the toil and the attacks, one by one by one, he picked up these crosses. And Mary said, good, I'm going to take care of this one. Let's go forward. So over and over and over again, she took these crosses that he picked up and said, now I can work with you because you're obliging the hard things, the hard work that my son did. You're cooperating. You get it, Al. You get it. I will protect you and I will expand this mission. So, so I guess it's just picking the crosses up, embracing them and saying, Mary, work with me. In this dark little area, this is, I don't know what my son's doing. My wife's, you know, she's mad at me for something. Yeah. Well, I'm going to pick up the cross and, and be the best I can be. Amen. 
Amen. That's the example that he gives us. I am so grateful. So uh, I will post in the sh- uh, show notes, Ignatius Press uh, just recently published, uh, Priest and Beggar. Um, I'm going to have it there. Let's all pray for the Sisters of Mary and for World Villages and the great work that they are doing. Um, the World Villages is how you can give money to the Sisters of Mary. Uh, let's also pray for Father Al's venerable, uh, Father Aloysius Schwartz, canonization. Um uh, so that we can uh, raise up another um, uh, saint among many, you know, within our history and tradition of our church uh, and, and really recognize him for, uh, for the uh, heroic virtue that he displayed. So, Kevin, I just I couldn't be more thankful for your book, for your time, um, for your gift that that you were able to give to me now and our listeners now. But um also, anyone who who goes, runs, and picks this up, John, you've been very gracious with me. Thank you very much. It, it was a, it was it was a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, wonderful. So, as we remind every gentleman that's listening to this episode, be a man, be a saint. Thanks for watching. <laughs>